The Navy has struggled with some safety mishaps recently, including ship collisions and fires. Now the service is elevating the way it prepares and looks after the well-being of its sailors and the systems they operate. The Navy Safety Command recently became a two-star outfit and announced new ways to keep its service members and ships in the best condition. Federal News Network Scott Mossioni spoke with Safety Commander Rear Admiral Christopher Engdahl. Safety Command is new in the sense in March of this year it became a two-star command. Safety Center, what it was before, is not new. What I will tell you, in, in 1951, it was actually called Naval Safety Command when it was first started. And that had 30 personnel with them, and it occurred after we lost about 700 aircraft in the couple of years, uh, post-World War II into 1951. So Safety Command was stood up uh, to address that high rate of naval mishaps. Right around 2016, 2017, there were decisions proffered uh, to end Safety Command or safety, the Safety Center and to turn it into a civilian-led organization that would primarily be focused on promotions and data gathering. Well. Uh, most of us who work in the federal government, especially most of us that work in the Navy, we know what happened in 2017 uh, with the two horrible collisions and the loss of life that occurred after that. That plan to really step back from the safety center, make it a civilian-led organization with promotions focus only, kind of that, that idea ended. And what I would probably say was uh, original CNO Richardson, the beginning of an idea of taking this to become a safety command. We go on in a few years, Bonhomme Richard takes place, and out of the major fires review with CNO Gilday and Vice Chief uh, Lesher, the decisions made to make this a safety command, to create an assessments branch within it, and to increase it to almost 268 personnel, uh, and that's what happened this last March, and to put a two-star admiral in charge who had fleet experience and more particularly strike group experience out in the operational fleet. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about your mission. What are you doing operationally and how has that evolved uh, as this has become a two-star command? I think most importantly, my relationship to the CNO as a special assistant has been reinforced in our new missions functions task. And specifically, what you'll see is Naval Safety Command has been granted the authority to compel corrective action to echelon two commanders, so think type commanders and number fleet commanders. We've also been given the authority to conduct no notice and short notice unit level safety inspections. So really what I would tell you is safety command has been given a broad uh, set of missions, functions, and tasks to ensure that across all echelons, risk and safety policies, procedures, and mitigations are in place and understood so that most importantly, we know we have risk, and we know in the military you're not ever going to reduce risk. Risk doesn't go away. We need to ensure that it resides at the correct echelon, and that those echelons understand it, can mitigate it, and that that risk resides where it can best be handled. And what kind of teeth does your command have if you do see some sort of you know safety problem? You know, you mentioned these no warning tests and, and no warning inspections and things like that. What happens afterward if there is an issue? I've had an assessments branch created as part of the new safety command transition. So this is probably about 30 uh, very senior combination of government service employees and military uniform personnel. So 
they're able to go out to the Echelon 2 and Echelon 3 commanders, do assessments, and then generate for the commanders where their risk lies, where they may not be resilient in management of that risk. And they have the authority, if necessary, to go to a Echelon 2 commander and say, you have to stop this activity because the procedures and processes that you have in place aren't sufficient to manage the correct risk and the danger that exists. So I think that's one of the fundamental changes. Uh, in the past, Safety Center had been out to the ESH-4. So think at the, at the ship level, at the unit level, doing assessments on fall hazards, uh, hazardous material storage, uh, lifelines, procedure compliance, procedures. And, and then we gave that report to the commanding officer, and then we would leave the area with the confidence that that commanding officer understood all of his risks, that he was moving those barriers to mitigating that risk up. Now what I think you'll see is the safety command at the higher, at the S2 level, the fleet commander level, the tight commander level, really vigorously informing and enforcing with those commanders, do they have the command and control right? Do they have the right mitigation steps? Do they understand the risk as it's been presented? Does that risk reside in the correct spot? Are these individual commanding officers absorbing risk that they're not, they don't have the authority to, or the responsibility to adjust or to mitigate? To take this a little bit farther, what are you hoping to get out of this as an end goal? And, you know, obviously you want better safety, right? But, you know, are there specific metrics or goals that you're trying to get after in your first couple of years or, um, you know, in, in the long term? My goals are, are probably, probably two or threefold. I think, number one, it's important, just like with the get real, get better uh, cultural changes, that an understanding in the fleet about what safety command is what they represent now out in the field to the S4, S5 commander, the S4 commander, and the S2 and S3 commander. I think that's important. And that's you know, the recent signing of our mission functions task and the, and the more recent, I think, in the next day or two, the safety management system guidance. I think it's important that we, we inform the fleet of, of how safety command will benefit the commanders now and, and help them manage risk because ultimately we can't eliminate it. We have to reduce it as best we can, but then we have to determine where it resides at what correct echelon that can do something about that risk. So that's, that's probably goal number one. I think the second piece is to install, instill some discipline in the execution of our assessments across all echelons. As I mentioned before, we had been very focused on the S5, so the unit level, and our reports would go to the unit level commander. I mean, what we found now is, you know, that unit-level commander may be struggling in, in a manpower piece or an equipment piece or a readiness piece uh, or a budgetary piece, and so he or she had really no way to, to mitigate or get at that risk, and there were barriers for he or she to push those risks up. So I think my second goal is to establish discipline in, in how we execute our assessments across all echelons. The last piece, I think, is that we have to be transparent and deliberate in our assessment across all echelons. Uh, and by that, I mean uh, being able to report on, hey, these are the best practices that have been identified, but best practices aren't sufficient for safety command now. It has to be 
contrary to a technical manual or contrary to uh, a authorized procedure. We need to make sure that we are deliberate in that fact and that this is not just an assessment uh, of safety professionals that will come to your ship or, or some, come to your TICOM and tell you you're not very resilient in managing risk because, uh, because we feel that's the case. So I think a deliberate, self or deliberate assessment piece, I think a disciplined approach in the execution of how we do this, uh, and then lastly, as I said, really understanding where the risk resides and being correct and how we address it. Navy Safety Command's Rear Admiral Christopher Engdahl speaking with Federal News Network's Scott Mossioni. Check out Scott's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you, and then and, and how did what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA, and he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. 
there's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think it would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, something he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, And so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, One thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, But we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals, um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that back seat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. 
other times I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, how do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down in the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry. Maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly, um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. <laughs>